Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. Pray just before we get into the Bible. Father, thank you for every single word of scripture. Lord, thank you that you promised that it's good for us and it teaches us. It's good for our souls to, to come to the word of God. And Lord, we come expectantly knowing that you, you long and you love to speak to your people, to build your people, to edify the church. Lord, and that's what, that's what we want today, Father. We want you to, to be moving amongst us, building us growing us into the likeness of Jesus, growing us into the church that you want um, for Greenwich, for this area, for us to become, for us to increasingly become. I pray in the name of Jesus for the Holy Spirit to take the word of God, the living word of God, and, and plant it in our hearts today. And it would do us good in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we today are going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3. So let's do a quick recap of the story so far. For those of you who may have missed a few weeks or whatever, back in chapter 1, Jonah, the prophet of God, is told by God to go to the ancient city of Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh. He says, God says, arise, Jonah, go to that great city of Nineveh. The evil of that city of Nineveh had come up before the Lord. And he wanted Jonah, his prophet, to go to this dark, violent, evil, brutal city and warn it of God's judgment against it. And Jonah doesn't like the sound of that very much. He hates Nineveh. He's not for it. He's against it. And he has no intention of warning them of anything, let alone of God's judgment against it. So Jonah gets in a boat and he heads in the opposite direction. He doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish, which is in modern day Spain. So he's in Israel, uh, um, in a place called Joppa, which is modern day Jaffa, gets in a boat, heads across the Mediterranean Sea to Spain, to this place place called Tarshish. On this boat, he falls asleep. He's in the bottom of the boat. He's in the hull of the boat that Ben taught us last week. Um, And he falls asleep. And God hurls a storm to wake Jonah up, to stop Jonah on his journey going to Spain. The sailors on that boat are terrified. They think they're going to sink. They think the boat is going to break up. Such is the, the supernatural nature of the storm that God hurls down onto the Mediterranean Sea. So they wake Jonah up and Jonah says to them, look guys, I, I'm running away from God. The only way this storm is going to su- stop, the only way you're going to survive is if you throw me over the, over the edge and into the water. The sailors don't really like the sound of that very much. They try to row back to land. It doesn't work. And so they throw Jonah over into the water. As he hits the water, the sea calms. The storm stops. And those sailors worship the living God. They worship Jonah's God because he is the one who holds the sea in the palm of his hand. Meanwhile, Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. But God appoints a fish. He appoints a fish. I love that phrase. I don't know why. He appoints a fish to go and swallow Jonah. Jonah is in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Who else is in the belly of a tomb for three days and three nights? And last week, 
in the belly of the fish, we had Ben took us through Jonah's prayer, right? In, in the belly of that fish, Jonah cries out to God. He prays to God. He's crying to God and he comes to the critical conclusion in chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the kind of like, it's like the, the, the linchpin of the whole book, the critical moment in the whole book. Jonah finally has realized that salvation belongs to the Lord. He seems at this point, at least partly, to realize that the God of the Bible is a God of grace. That he saves through grace. That salvation belongs to God. And that he, Jonah, needs that salvation by grace just as much as the people of Nineveh need that salvation, need that grace of God. And at that moment, chapter 2, verse 9, in response to that moment, as soon as he realizes that, he, that need for grace, God speaks to the fish. He says, oi, fish, spit him out. And he does, and he spits him out onto dry land. And that's where we pick up our story today. Jonah has just been spat out onto dry land. And today we're going to cover all of chapter 3, where he finds his way finally. He wanders his way finally to that great city of Nineveh. And he is on a mission to declare the word of God to that great city. That's what Jonah is going to be doing today. Declaring the word of God to a great city. At Emmanuel, we have a passion to present Jesus to London. We are on a mission to our great city. And what I want to do today is I want to explore what we can learn from Jonah's mission to a great city. I want us to think about the lessons that we can draw out of this chapter about how we present Jesus to, to our great city of London from what we see Jonah doing in the great city of Nineveh. Does that make sense? And there are two things that I, I feel like I want to pull out um, from this chapter in particular today um, that kind of help us and should inform us about how we do church, how we preach the word, how we, how we do life. First, on our mission to present Jesus to our city, we must speak truth with love. Speak truth with love. That's the first. Second, we must seek justice and love mercy. Speak truth with love and seek justice and love mercy. That's what we're going to be pulling out um, from Jonah chapter 3 today. So let's get stuck into the word of God. Words should come up on the screen. Read along with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
So he's ordered a fast, right? Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay. So the the chapter opens with Jonah hearing the word of God, and he's being told to arise, to get up. This is the third time that he's been told to arise, by the way. Twice by God, once by the sailors. Right at the beginning, God says, arise, go to Nineveh. When he's in sleep in the boat, the sailors say, arise, why are you asleep in the middle of the storm? And now in chapter 3, God says, arise, get back to that city of Nineveh where I told you to go. This time, he listens. He gets up and he goes to Nineveh. And when he gets there, let's be fair to Jonah, he shows some guts, right? He shows some courage. He wanders into the capital of the Assyrian Empire and says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown by my God. You've got to remember from back in chapter 1, the Assyrians, this, this, the capital city of Nineveh was the city of, of the Assyrian Empire. They were brutal. They were known for their violence towards anybody who would oppose them. If you don't believe me, you can go to the British Museum this afternoon and you can go and look at the, at the stonework that is from that ancient city of Nineveh. And on that stonework, it has depictions of what those people used to do to their enemies. It's like chiselled propaganda, old school. Like You can go and look at that. You can see it there, chiselled into rock. They, they would skin people alive. They would chop out people's tongues. They would make people carry the decapitated heads of their family members through the streets to shame them and to say, this is what we do to our enemies. The city of Nineveh was a a violent, brutal place, full of evil. The Assyrian Empire was an enemy of the people of God, of Jonah's people. And Jonah here is a foreigner in that city and he has the courage, finally to go to this city and to shout in 40 days, my God is going to overthrow this city. And even though he spent three days in a fish and he's been vomited out in order to get him to get, that, get to that place, right? It's not, it's not been an easy journey for Jonah to, to find this courage. I still think that takes some courage to go into a city like that and do that. And whilst we don't, we don't necessarily have recorded all the things that Jonah preached in that city of Nineveh, we do know the effect of what he said, right? It's there for us in the text. Verses 8 to 10, we read that the people of Nineveh repented. The Hebrew word for repented is used four times in those two verses alone. It's trying to tell us something. The people repented. They turned from their evil ways. Jonah had the courage to speak the truth of God's word to speak the truth of the need for repentance in an enemy city. But rather than lynch Jonah, rather than attack him, rather than kind of string him up, Nineveh, a city which has been described by by some historians as a terrorist state, such was its evil, such was its violence, this, this Nineveh, this great city, turn 
from their ways in order to get right with God. And this wasn't just the something that was happening at the edges of society, right? It wasn't just a few weird outsiders in strange places who were doing this. This was, this was broad-scale response across the city. The word of the need for the, for the repentance of the people back to God was spreading like wildfire across the city. People were talking about what, what Jonah was saying. God was convincing and convicting hearts about what they needed to do. People were talking about it. Even the king gets to hear about it. The king of this vast, powerful empire whose mode of operation is to brutally murder anyone who opposes him in order to protect his power, his prestige, his position, in order to conquer everybody before him. The king of that empire steps down from his throne, removes his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, sits in ashes in order to demonstrate his repentance before God. And then he commands a a city-wide fast for both people and animals, which is interesting when you get to chapter four, but we'll come and get that in chapter four. He commands the people of the city to turn from evil. That's what the king does. Why? Because God has used the seed of Jonah's courage to speak truth. He's used this this seed of courage from Jonah to speak of the need of repentance into that city, to speak of the need to turn around and and head back towards God, to speak of the need of, of forgiveness of sin before a holy God. That one seed of courage from a very flawed very reluctant, very half-hearted prophet. And God took that seed and he exploded it. That from that seed of courage, he exploded it into city-wide repentance of the most violent ancient empire that we can think of. From the king to the, to the cows. Isn't God amazing? He takes that seed of Jonah's courage and he just explodes it beyond anything that we could possibly really imagine that he could do. God is amazing. Now you may be thinking, that's all very well, Stu. I know that in the Bible these things happen, that it's written down in the Bible, but that sort of thing doesn't actually happen in the real world. Let's get real. So I want to give you a history lesson. I like history, so I'm going to give you a history lesson. Let me, let me take you to Pyongyang. Pyongyang. Hannah just went to Korea. Not Pyongyang, but that's in the north. She didn't go to the north. The capital of North Korea now. Back in the late 1800s and the early 20th century, Pyongyang was, was known as a city, like a lot of cities are, to be honest, as a city of wine, women and song, a bit of debauchery, right? In 1866, the first Protestant missionary, a guy called Robert Thomas, who was from Wales, landed in Pyongyang. 1866. He was beaten, he was stabbed, he was beheaded in that city. 20 years later, in 1885, the first Korean church was started. Two years later, the first seven Koreans were baptized. That's 20 years later. Fast forward another 20 years, in January 1907, a group of Korean Christians and missionaries were gathered together for, to study the Bible and to pray. And at this meeting, along with others, a Korean pastor called Gil Seong-ju, sorry if I haven't got the pronunciation right, 
was led by the Spirit to lead the people gathered at this Bible study in prayers of repentance. Repentance, particularly for the Koreans' historic racial hatred of the Japanese. That's what he was convicted by, about by the Holy Spirit. And he led the people that he, there in repentance, in, this, in prayers of repentance. And this public repentance from Gil Seong-ju and other leaders started a wave of repentance that, was a, that ended up with a powerful move of the Holy Spirit across the entire city of Pyongyang. By mid-1907, there were 30,000 people who had come to Christ in Pyongyang. By 1910, that's just three years later, there were no less than 250,000 Christians worshipping in more than 2,000 churches across Korea. The Old Testament had been translated into Korean. 250,000. That's 44-ish years. 46 years. After World War II and the split between North and South Korea, a lot of Korean Christians ended up moving to the South as of 2015, 27% of the South Korean population identified as Christian. That's about 14 million people. That's about 77,000 churches. The seeds of courage from people like Robert Thomas, from people like Gilsung Ju, to speak truth led to a revival of repentance led to a revival of faith, a revival that turned a city upside down, that impacted families, generations of families, that impacted a nation. Do we believe that God can do it again? Do we believe that it's the same God now? He totally is. He's done it before, he can do it again. We want to be a church that presents Jesus to London, right? And to do that, each one of us is going to, be, going to need to be willing to plant seeds of, of courage by speaking truth. Whether that's down the pub when a certain topic comes up, not just kind of sticking our head below the sand, and, but, but actually saying, yeah, put my hand up. I, I believe in God. I, I follow Jesus. Or... Offering to pray for someone when someone tells you that they're sick or they're coming up against something in their life. Saying, I, I'm a Christian. Can I, can I pray for you? I believe Jesus is alive and I just like, I'm practicing to pray. Can I practice? I just want to pray for you. Is that okay? Or quite simply being open and honest with people in your workplace about what you did on Sunday. What did you get up to at the weekend? Uh, watched the football, did something. Uh, Sunday morning was a bit of a blur, but you know. Being open and honest with people about who you are, what you do, what you believe in your workplace. When we speak the truth of Jesus, when we speak the truth of the gospel, when we talk about the need to turn back to him, when we speak about the heart of God that welcomes us back with open arms, when we are courageous seeds of courage in those moments, God can use those seeds to transform lives to transform families, to transform neighbourhoods, to transform cities, nations. He's done it before. He's got form. <laughs> Been like that one. Just, one. just one final thing before I wrap this point up. 
I think that what, what we see here from Jonah is, is courage and boldness to speak the truth of God, the word of God, albeit he has to be sicked up by a fish in order to get him there, right? But there's something missing in how he does it. The way he speaks truth, the way he talks about God's judgment of Nineveh's sin, it's almost like there's, there's kind of glee in his eyes when he's saying it. It's almost like he'd, he'd love it if God was to judge Nineveh and come, and come and condemn these people. In the words that we're given from the text from Jonah, there's, there's a warning of judgment, but there's, there's no reassurance about the prospect of forgiveness. It, we don't get that from the text. He may have said it, I don't know, but in the text, we don't get it. And in fact, when, when the king of Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes and calls the people to a public fast, he does so saying, perhaps... Perhaps God will forgive us. Perhaps he is the sort of God who is merciful to those who genuinely repent and come back to him. It doesn't sound like Jonah has preached that much hope to Nineveh. I'm going to look at why that is next week. For now, though, I think it's enough to say that when we speak truth courageously, let's make sure that we do it in love. Let's make sure we do it in love. Sometimes as, as Christians in our modern society and culture, sometimes we can, we can feel pretty alienated from the cities that, that we live in. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but sometimes it can feel like that. Pretty alienated even from the people who, who, we, who are around us, right? Often it can feel like the, the world has moved so far from the truth revealed in the Bible. It's like, how do I even... How do I even engage in this? And when it feels like that, when we're speaking God's truth, speaking about the need to, to repent, turn to him, the truth and the reality of evil and sin, the truth about the holiness of God that we sung about earlier, we can, we can speak in a, a de- defensive sometimes, unloving tone sometimes, just like Jonah. But that's not how we are supposed to speak truth. Romans 2 It says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. When Jesus interacts with people who are clearly going the wrong way in their lives, straying from God's path, clearly in sin, he speaks truth with love. When when the woman caught in adultery in John 8, for example, what does Jesus say to her? He says, does anybody here condemn you after writing in the sand? And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He speaks truth. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you in love. Let's be a people who who are courageous enough to speak truth in love to our city. Amen? Amen. Okay, that's number one. The next thing I want to draw out from this passage, which, which helps us think about how we should go about being church, presenting Jesus, preaching the gospel, is that we should seek justice and love mercy. As we present Jesus to London, a critical and important part of that mission is to be a people who seek justice and love mercy. Nineveh was a city, a society that had been saturated with violence, right? A culture of violence had been set from the top to the bottom. When the king of Nineveh calls everybody to repent, He tells people to to lay aside the violence that is in their hands. That's important. Violence and evil has has kind of seeped through. Violence and evil has been the way that the authority in Nineveh 
and the state has worked. There is systemic injustice. Violence is institutional in this city. And the words of the king seem to be suggesting that the same thing has, has happened, that violence and evil and injustice has seeped into everyday people's hands. It's how people, how people interacted in that society. And then Jonah comes along and he calls them out. His is a, a prophetic voice that says, what you're doing is wrong. In Jonah, in his message to Nineveh, he is, he's speaking the truth of, of their need to repent and turn to God. But wrapped up with it, integral to it, is... is a revealing of God's opposition to injustice, right? God's opposition to evil. There's the truth of, of God's word and then, and then there's an, an opposition to the injustice and evil in society. Both things are happening in, in Nineveh. There's like, you need to repent because God is against injustice. God is against evil. Both of those things are happening. And when we think about presenting Jesus to London and being a grace-filled presence in our city, we need to be doing both of those things well. We need to be a people committed to speaking the truth of God's word in love. And we need to be a people committed to seeking, Jesus, seeking justice and loving mercy. Both of those things need to be present. Does that make sense? This means that we need, we need to prioritize God's word. We need to take the Bible seriously. We need to build our lives on, on the truth of it. We believe it's important to tell people about Jesus. We, need, we think it's important to preach the gospel about the need to turn back to God and we need the courage to stand up to injustice and evil. We need to love mercy. We need to be a church that loves the poor and the marginalized. We need to love and support and defend those who need help the most. That's what, that's what God's church in the city is supposed to look like. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's kind of obvious. Thanks for pointing out the obvious. But it's not always the case. It's not always the case. Often, what can happen in churches is that churches fall into one of these camps, but don't stray too far into the other. Some churches are great at loving the poor, active about fighting injustice, they run a food bank. They, they have an advocacy ministry. They only eat fair trade biscuits and they're militant about that. The whole lot, right? They really have their social justice work down. They really do seek justice and love mercy. But they're not so hot when it comes to speaking the truth of God's word fearlessly. They're not so hot necessarily on the need to turn and come back and receive the grace of God in order to be forgiven of their sin. The word of God perhaps isn't isn't so highly prized. The truth of God isn't so highly prized. Equally, if you flip it, it's easy for churches who love speaking truth, love the word, love calling for repentance. Repentance is their game. They love it. They eat it up. They love nothing more than that. But when it comes to seeking justice, loving mercy, serving the poor, working for societal change, when it comes to that, quite often that gets pushed to the side. And it's not easy for the church to kind of hold on to both of these things, right? It's a big job. It's a big task. It's a big calling. It's hard. <laughs> but I think the call of the church is to do both of these things. We're called to speak truth in love, spread the gospel, preach the word, and 
We're called to stand up for justice, love mercy, serve the poor. In fact, I, I think these two things should be and are inseparable and you actually see it in the Great Commission from Jesus. We, we read the first part of that earlier from Matthew 28. Jonah got his marching orders from God, right? Arise, go to Nineveh. Those were his marching orders. Jesus gives his church, us, our marching orders in Matthew 28. Says this, well, I'm going to carry on, I'm going to keep on reading from what we heard earlier. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Amazing. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He said, make disciples, baptizing them, and teach them to observe all I commanded. What did Jesus command? Luke 4, he sets out the manifesto for his ministry by reading from the book of Isaiah and saying that God had appointed him to declare good news to the poor. Matthew 23, he tells his followers not to neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Matthew 25, Jesus said that those who inherit the kingdom will feed the hungry, visit the prisoner, clothe the naked, and care for the sick. Matthew 5, he tells us to let our good deeds shine before men. A key part of the mission of God, the mission of the church in our great city is to speak truth in love, preach the gospel, and to seek justice, love mercy, serve the poor. Not only does serving the poor and, and, and fighting injustice reflect the heart of God, right? It reflects the very nature of our God. It also means that our witness, our testimony of who Jesus is, is credible to the world around us. When we sacrificially serve the poor and fight injustice and love mercy, people know, at the very least, that we really mean what we say about Jesus, that we actually take seriously what he taught us. It gives credibility to, to what we're saying and what we're doing. They look in and they say, oh, okay, they really mean it. When Jesus said, serve the poor, they're doing that. People look in and they see it. And, and, and if you're here and you're sceptical about what the church actually does for society. And if you are here and that is you, you're not alone. I read a study recently that said that 41% of non-Christians in the UK believe that the church has made no positive difference in the world. That should be quite a sobering statistic. 41% of non-Christians think that the church has made no positive difference in the world. If that's you, let me give you some numbers. In 2022, 3 million UK adults received help from churches and Christian faith organisations because of the cost, in, cost of living crisis. 3 million UK adults. That's not the families, that's just the adults received help from Christian organisations like the church. It's estimated that the church in the UK gives £3 billion worth of labour hours to social projects in the UK every year. Three billion labour hours. Three billion pounds worth of labour hours. 75% of food banks in the UK are run by churches or Christian organisations. And that, honestly, is just really scratching the surface of, of what the church, of what Christians do in our country. When the world sees our fight against injustice, against evil, and our love for mercy, our love for people, it gives credibility to the message of Jesus. So what can you do? 
Ben's already mentioned it, November 19th, we are going to be taking our Christmas offering. As he's already said, all we do as a a church family is funded from the regular giving of, of the family. People in this church give regularly every month in order to invest in the kingdom, in order for us to do this. And then a few times a year, we are in the habit of taking an offering in order to give it away. Last year, um, and that's that's what we're going to be doing on, on November 19th. Just like last year, we are going to be giving and supporting and, and helping project, projects with Greenwich Debt Advice Centre, of which we are one of the founding churches. We're going to be supporting a Christian charity called Safe Families, which works in our borough with some of the most vulnerable families. We are going to be supporting Greenwich Food Bank, and we're going to be blessing the families in our own Box of Hope project, which we run with local schools to combat holiday hunger. And all of these causes that we are raising money for on on November 19th aim to bless the most vulnerable children and families in our local area. That's what we're going to be doing. Any money left over will then be added into our, from those projects, will be added into our community fund, and we will use that community fund in order to help people who who need a little bit of extra help financially throughout the rest of the year, both in the church and outside of the church in our local area. That's what we're doing on November 19th. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And we want to be a community that learns what it looks like to believe him. What it looks like to to follow a path of radical, sacrificial, joy-filled generosity in our city. Last year, I think I'm right, Alice will have to correct me if I'm wrong, I think we raised about 7,600, just shy of 8,000 pounds to bless those families at Christmas time. We, we blessed about 100 of the most vulnerable and families in our community. I'd love to get there again. I'd love to be able to do that again, to serve and bless those in the greatest need at Christmas. So, so as we're thinking about how can I engage with seeking justice, loving mercy through the church in our local area, one thing that you can do on the November 19th is to, is to pray about what you can give. No pressure. But that's an action point that you can take today. You can pray about that and consider that. Okay, so I'm going to wrap things up. I need to, I'm running out of time. We want to present Jesus to proclaim him and to shout about the truth of the love of Jesus in our city, right? We want to see lives transformed by the gospel. Two ways that this is going to happen that we can see in Jonah 3. First is by each one of us sowing seeds of courage and speaking truth, speaking about the truth of who God is, the love of Jesus, the need for people to turn back to him and trust in his grace and that he is running back towards them, sowing seeds of courage as we speak truth, and second, as a church, seeking justice and loving mercy, being a church who who loves those in need, which doesn't stand idly by as injustice rolls forward. A church that gives credibility to our faith in Jesus by actually really doing what he says to do. Speaking truth in love, seeking justice and mercy. That's what I think Jonah 3 can tell us about about reaching our great city. If the band could come up, I'm coming into land, that would be great. I want to close today by taking communion. I hope you've all been given a communion cup. If not, welcome team. Could Could you give those out? If you could grab, I actually need one. So if you could grab your communion cup, that would be great.
communion is a, is a symbol, right? It, it's a symbol that... It's a symbol that reminds us of all that Jesus has done for us. Thank you so much. And as we gather together to take it, we are proclaiming the truth of our faith in his loving, saving work on the cross as the Son of God. Communion speaks the truth of his love for us. When we take it together, that's what it's doing. It's speaking of the truth of God's love for us. It's saying, Jesus would die for you, has died for you. It speaks of his truth. It speaks of the truth of God's justice. Communion tells us, and it tells our watching world as we we take it, as we gather every Sunday to take it, that justice in the end will be done for sin. It will either be done on the cross, where where it's nailed to the cross because of Jesus, or we have to bear that ourselves before a holy God. Sin one way or the other will will be dealt with. Hallelujah, Jesus took, took it for us. Communion speaks the truth about the unity of us in the church. We take the bread and we take the wine and we do it united as one people by Jesus in God. And we are given a mission as a people to tell the world the good news about Jesus and to represent him in our city. We are one people through Jesus who are on a mission to make disciples and show the world the love of God. Let's take communion together. I'm going to pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love of Jesus. Father, thank you that um, this bread and this wine speak such deep, clear truths about who you are and what you've done for us in dealing with sin, what you've done for us as we repent and run back to you, what you've done for us in in pouring your grace into our lives. Thank you that it speaks that we are one people on a mission to represent that love to our city. And Lord, we take it in remembrance of you and we're grateful. We're grateful for everything you have done. Amen.